From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition. In the time of pandemic, we are coming to you virtually, but we still do this every week, and we will be back in person as soon as we can. You've got the whole team today, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, this is Cade Massey, Maddie Datz producing the show. We are going to be here for the next hour. We talk COVID-19 until we roll into sports in the time of COVID-19. It's hard to talk about statistics without digging into it, but also it's hard to talk about sports without digging into it. So that's how we've been spending some portion of the first half hour of the show. Gentlemen, I'm always interested. There's so much bouncing around. I'm always interested. What has caught your eye in coronavirus this week? Well, I'll start, I'll just start quickly. You know, I think they're doing something that I like, which is, you know, they're trying lots of different things. And so, you know, at one point, not that there was a lot of evidence for it, but, you know, HC Q, hydroxychloroquine. A lot of people thought there might be some promise, not as a preventative, but on seriously ill patients. Now there's at least large enough studies to believe it's I, not particularly effective. Actually, the CDC has withdrawn its recommendation for it. Uh, Eric, let me just quickly interrupt. It's not. It was never thought of being effective um, on very serious. It was sort of supposed to be thought of as. Uh, Either preventing, either prevent, well, listen, it worked in the laboratory, so no one really knows. But the original thought was that it would help prevent people from getting infected, and it doesn't do that. I actually um, thought what I had read about it, I, maybe I'm wrong, I thought it was shortening. I thought it would shorten. And shortening. Shortening was the primary. And that would be the only arm of the different um, randomized studies, studies that would still be in question, whether it can actually shorten. Because it still doesn't help you die, and it doesn't work there. Right. But and now it doesn't we have, help and prevent. It doesn't, but, that's for sure also. But now we have remdesivir, or however you say it, that actually yeah. is shown proven to shorten stays. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. people are saying the hospital stays are, are coming out shorter because it's become more widely available. So we have an alternative to that anyway. Yeah. 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 I think the one that just came out today, which we were just briefly just talking about a little bit off air, was this, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, dexamethasone. And so this was a study that was done out of Oxford in the UK. Um, it basically reduced death by a third. So these are given to people that were the most severe cases. Um, it's actually steroid-based. And um, it's the first time, actually, at least me, I haven't read as many articles maybe as Adi or Shane or you have, Cade, but it was the first time I've heard about the application of steroids, which makes a lot of sense given the respiratory nature of COVID. And yeah, so, and yeah. The part I found kind of interesting is that, you know, we, we, I think when this uh, when COVID kind of first came up, we heard a lot about kind of uh, cytokine storm as like you know this kind of method of you know where a lot of people you know experience kind of the the kind of fatal version of it is due to this cytokine storm. But then I I, I haven't you know heard that term that term has not come up as much in the last like say month or two. But it didn't seem to be kind of as as kind of um, I guess important to the treatment. But this this is directly the steroid is directly kind of addressing that cytokine you know, storm. Which so they, 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 had, they had talked about uh, that early on, but the concern was the steroid suppresses your immune system. And the idea is the cytokine storm is an overreaction of your, your, your immune system. The problem, the delicate aspect of it, and this is why it was so scary, was that you don't want to suppress an immune system when you have a virus. Mm-hmm. So right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a treacherous business. So it sounds like they're, they're, they're working out. But one thing to add is that if, if the numbers are a third, that's about what the remdesivir works, if however you pronounce that word. But um, they're, so they're actually about a they're, third of the mortality rate. But so the third is for the sickest of patients, sickest yes. patients on respirator. So yeah. with the patients who are merely getting oxygen, it's something like a fifth, and then there are no consequences for people who are healthier than that. So it really is aimed at the most sick, which I think is I think is different than remdesivir. It is, yeah. I think I think that's right. Also, and you know what this reminds me of is you know. One way you could view this is that they're approaching this from a, I know that's not, but from from a statistical point of view, and here's what I mean. So one thing you can try to do, and you can decide how big the effect is, is you could try to prevent people from getting the virus. Okay, so how do you do that? We know social distancing might work. We know masks might work, et cetera. Then if someone gets it, 
you could start to think about what can I do to prevent them from being symptomatic or from getting severe enough that they have to go to the hospital. Then you could think about it of given someone's gone to the hospital, how can I reduce their length of stay? Or given someone's on a respirator in the most serious part, how can I reduce the probability of death? So to me, the part I like about it is that we're seeing, um, if you'd like, attacks on the virus at all different stages. And it may mm -hmm. turn out mm -hmm. that to drive this probability low enough that people and both people and health officials feel comfortable, it's going to take a combination of these factors until a vaccine is found. It might take, and by the way, a vaccine, we take a flu vaccine every year and it doesn't prevent you necessarily from getting the flu. So it might be in the future, six months from now, there may be a combination of mask, vaccine, social distancing, all of those that drive the probability low enough. So I also spent a lot of time this week looking at a lot of raw data, which is, which is amazingly available at all levels and more and more of it comes out. It's incredible what new papers are doing as they're including their GitHub repository, often as a standard course. We'd love to see that become the, the necessary component of publication in many real, real quickly by github repository you mean where someone puts their data they've worked on and you can go in and download their data right you not only download their data but also remake their figures their code is usually there i mean mm -hmm. github is a, is, a, is a version control it's for collaborative projects mm -hmm. and it's something it's a somewhat techie it's a little geeky to use um but it's but it's not easy it's not hard to just grab data from you don't have to be a, a aficionado or really understand what you're doing with github to just be able to grab data and figures mm -hmm. and code mm -hmm. uh, and so that's becoming very sta uh, standard. So um, Ferguson, the, the ep epidemiologist from England, he just published a paper looking at seropositivity uh, and a function of, and how much, and trying to figure out what the IFR is. And in particular, he was, he was trying I, to ask, I, a, uh, Adi, I'm IFR. using too much IFR, IFR, so infection fatality rate, which many people very much wanted to know. And early on from China, it looked like it was three to 5%, which is terrifying. Um, turns out that it's, it's somewhat, it's quite a bit lower than that. So the seropositivity is essentially the per percentage of the population that has antibodies. And there have been randomized studies across the world at local populations, at global populations, yep. trying to assess that. And they did a lot of things in their short paper in The Lancet. Um, some of it is trying to answer a big question, which is, do lockdowns work and how much? I thought their answer on that score is a little bit incomplete. But they did get good, solid data that shows that kind of the obvious, which is the more seroprevalent the virus is, the more deaths. Um, and that works pretty linearly. So the more there is out there, the better. The, the, and they, they estimated the seropositivity rate as being somewhere between 0.5 and 1.0. I actually grabbed that data myself. And I did find, um, uh, I think I improved substantially on their fit. They used a linear fit. It's really not a, a linear fit. It's not so great. It, it doesn't fit well at the, at the low values. And I also suspect that it turns around. So if you look at the places for which there's an enormous seropositivity, yeah. seropositivity like in some places in New York and, and some places in Spain and in England, you have places where 15, 20, 15, 20, 25, 30 or even higher um, places were infected. It turns out it actually tr seems to drop uh, very strong at those places as and well. You probably, you probably don't have that much data on that yet, but you will over time get it. But Adi, mm -hmm. so is one implication that it's, it, we observe deaths more readily than we observe seropositivity. And if there is this strong linear relationship, then we can just infer directly from deaths, at least over some range, how, how common it is in the population. Is it, is, it is if you assume that there's no transition into the different types of people being infected. So I built a story. I'll try it out on you. I'm not going to write it in a paper. My story, at the lowest seropositivity rates, the IFR is tiny. It's about five out of a thousand or 0.5% are even lower. And then at the, the most typical seropositivity we're seeing in most places, then it, it comes up to about 1%. And then in the places where there's huge infection, it drops back down again to 0.5%. So the story that I would tell is that if you catch it really, really quickly, you do very well and it doesn't, and countries like Germany and some Denmark have very low, low rates. If you kind of let it out, the worst people, the most affected and vulnerable people die quickest and then they get hurt the most. And then when you let it spread widely, well, then you start getting those right. low IFRs down because the people who don't tend to die now are starting to get it. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think it just comes back to kind of the, just the heterogeneity in, in this IFR, right? I mean, yeah. you know, like at, at a nursing home as opposed to, you know, on a college campus, I'm sure you'd see incredibly different IFRs just because well, so of the age of the population, et cetera. Let me make sure I understand the, the connection between that and Adi's point. Adi's saying, look, if, with, if seropositivity is low, it means it got caught pretty quickly. And one of the chief benefits of that is that it probably didn't get into these more vulnerable population the lower chances of getting into nursing homes or prisons right but that middle ground is where it it, it. it hit enough it it got into the population enough to hit those very vulnerable subpopulations okay and then it drops back down because you've kind of sort of washed through those vulnerable subpopulations essentially right and i will say that i'm hoping to see that result get stronger um it fit the model but it's the data is limited so we'll start to see when we get more data whether that really starts to hold up Okay. Let me just build on Adi's point. So let me just say, uh, I like your story, Adi, and let me tell you why. Um, let me tell you the story we tell in marketing, which we've empirically validated over the last like, 50 years when people have studied diffusion models. And so early adopters tend to have kind of low churn rates. Um, as you move into the population, the churn rate tends to be much higher. Then what happens is the people that have high churn rates tend to churn. And then the people that are left, you tend to have low churn rates again. We call this the paradox of loyalty. It makes you think that the long-lasting people are more loyal, but actually what happens is the, high, the unloyal people have churned away. So if we, were to, if we replace churn with IFR and death here, early adopters tend to die at a slow rate. It diffuses through the population. You bring in another group of people. Those people tend to have higher churn rates, but then conditional on not having churned, who do you have left at the end? these people appear loyal. So this is the classic story we tell in, and, and it's the classic diffusion patterns we see when we look at products and their churn rates as they move through the population. So one of the things to follow up in this story, which I think is important, and maybe for policy it's important, is we didn't know early on how this is gonna work, but in the future, particularly prevent second waves, or as everyone starts to get back to normal, if you will, in some version of it, we have to figure out a way to make sure that those high churn people, if you call them, in this case, the people most likely to die, are protected. And, and that is important to keep it down really low going forward. So we talk about college campuses, and I had a meeting with some of our, our, our you know, deans and stuff earlier about what we're doing for, for some of the summer classes and for, for the classes in the fall. And one thing, if, if, and many campuses are opening up to students, they're gonna be there. One thing you have to do is if they do get sick while they're there, you got to keep them there. You can't let them go back home. And that's the safest thing for the, for the community. The students should stay together and not, you know, not go back home if they get sick. And that helps it prevent the elderly in their, in their, in their circles from getting ill. Well, I think you're build, let me build on your point again, Adi. Let me say what then the most important thing to me is. I agree with that entirely, but then here's the key. Are asymptomatic people spreaders? Because if, the, if young people get the virus, test, they don't necessarily go get tested because they feel fine or the school doesn't have a widespread testing program. They then go home. I mean, there's lots of indication now that asymptomatic people may be less spreading. There's less chance of getting it. But that to me is the key. You either need that or, you know, people have been saying for years, well, I'm going to, like when you go into a building or a hotel, I'm going to take your temperature. Okay, well, is what's the relationship between someone's temperature? Because if all we did is when someone leaves campus, we could just you know put a thing to their head and say, what's your temperature? Oh, you're below 100. Therefore, you can go home and see your parents now. Well, is that true? Because that's where it's going to come down to, Adi. I agree with you. I'm less worried about the students staying with each other or when they get it quarantining. I'm worried about them going out and infecting their families and loved ones and other people that aren't on campus. And the question is, again, are asymptomatic people spreaders yeah i think there's a couple of things we can we can do for example you you will have a college kid who will be coming home will you be will you be asking him to quarantine for a, a week by the way is while not foolproof will will prevent your by 95 percent. most cases get appear by then um so would you ask you know your son to come back and stay uh, and the second question i'd have is what is he doing now i mean the kids are finding ways to spend time with each other right now. So what are, what are, what are we supposed to do now other than um, you can't kick them out? Uh, and, and I'm not forcing them to quarantine. And I have three, three young adults living with me right now. And 
they're, they try, they claim they social distance when they meet, but are they? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I've heard of some college campuses with this kind of plan to sort of shorten the semester and end yeah. at Thanksgiving, essentially. And I assume that the mo- main motivation for that is just to kind of cut down on spread and travel away from the campuses that you wouldn't be going home for Thanksgiving and then coming back to campus right. and going home again for the winter break. Um, but of course, if, if, if that really was the motivation, you would want to pair that with some pretty substantial testing, you know, like every student leaving campus for Thanksgiving should get tested, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Guys, I want to go back to a piece that was in the New York Times last week. We didn't have a chance to talk about it, but I'm curious if you saw it, what you made of it, and what do you think about the whole, whole methodology? They surveyed 500 epidemiologists about their plans for various normal daily activities when they would do them next. And the choices were this summer, three to 12 months or more than a year. There was also a choice of never again. It wasn't used very often, but it's basically like, when do you expect to start doing these things again? And they reported it out on a pretty clean table that kind of sorts it from most willing to do this soon versus most likely to do this sometime from now. So we can go through the details. A couple of these are kind of interesting to me, but I wanted to first ask you, how do you feel about this method and do you find it useful in any way? All right. Well, I'll start off with this typical statistician's objection for in survey design, which is there's a huge difference between what you say you will do and what you will do. And that is one of the most standard potential, I mean, obviously necessary design flaw, but it, it's very, very problem. Ask people, will you give to charity? Oh, of course. Do you give to charity? Never. Hello. What's the, what's the problem? So when people say they will or will not do things, I'm noticing push comes to shove, rubber meets road, whatever platitude you want to throw out. Um, they may find themselves doing those things, which it's in, okay, in, in, and, and therefore I don't fine. necessarily know. Yeah, fine. But yeah. If, if one one thing you could you might still infer, even if that's true, mm-hmm. you might still infer something about the relative risk. Like of, a rank ordering of activity yeah. probably is activities. relatively robust to that kind of bias. Right. Bias. Right. right. I think uh, it's interesting that you ask, you talk about that, Adi, because actually one of my colleagues that we hired two years ago from MIT, he's in marketing, obviously, but he's a cognitive scientist by training. This is what he studies. His name's John McCoy. What he studies is that, let's imagine I ask two questions. What is, what would you do? And then I ask what you think others would do. Now, let me just say his first PhD is in mathematics. So he's developed a mathematical framework to do a comparison of, in some sense, you versus what you think others will do. And so I agree with you, stated intention data has all kinds of biases, but that's, I don't have to ask you about you. I can ask you about what the population is going to do. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly his theory is about how your responses and your deviations from the population responses and how those are informative. And of course, we all know Two of our colleagues in, if you like, management, marketing, psychology, uh, Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers, their entire research stream is about, you know, people predicting these events that are really hard to predict. And they actually show that if you take a, you know, wisdom of the crowds types of prediction markets, this is the, uh, I forget its name, the good, it's not good prediction project, but it's good good judgment project. Thank you. That actually there are some people that are fairly accurate in doing this. So I'm a little more positive if you are, but not about the question of when would you do something or I I don't think people are very good at that, but I think asking about others and combining judgments might not be too bad. But but, so I, 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 you guys are having a healthy debate here on the value of surveys, and I, I appreciate both perspectives. This thing, I feel like, has a little bit different value, which is helping us get some sense of the prudence of various daily activities as we decide how to fold them back into our lives. And I think what I admire about this is that they talk to 500 epidemiologists. I mean, we know psychologists who don't collect 500 in, in their experiments. And this is a newspaper. So I really appreciate that. And as my colleague and friend George Wu said, who, who's, who tweeted, he said, look, just take it as a, as, a, as a check against your own beliefs. I mean, this isn't black and white, but it's like some check on where, you, I like, I like, where you're coming down. I like Shane's thought. I like Shane's thought about at least a rank ordering. Like, in other words, imagine someone gave me a rank ordered list of 50 things and, and I said to Adi, hey, Adi, you know what? Let's go do X. Well, then I should be willing to do everything less risky That's than right. X. 
Okay, so know, let me tell you, this is one of the reasons I brought it up. Because no, the, I think it's a great it's a great idea that you know you may not have the level right, but maybe you get the rank ordering right in some way. Which well, is, you're not going to want to know how it shakes out because they ask for twenty or twenty five of these things, and at the top, the things that are people are most willing to go do is like go see a doc for a non urgent appointment, maybe take a vacation overnight within driving distance, even get a haircut was about 40-40 between this summer and, and three to 12 months, and then 20 would say late, much later. But then the next category is mo- most respondents, the modal response was later in the year, and this is like a small dinner party, work in a shared office, ride the subway. And so, you know, these are it's pretty sobering to say we're not ready to do that for another three to 12 months. But then worse, the, those for which the modal response was a year or more, Now we're getting into the rank ordering, the bottom of the list. The last item, 64% of the respondents, these are epidemiologists, said they wouldn't do this for a year more is attend a sporting event, concert, or play. Yeah, because that is uh, how many epidemiologists care about sports and get enough value to overcome the risk. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're just trafficking in stereotypes. I know. But but that's the thing that's funny about this is that your willingness to do something has to be proportional uh, you know, take a risk on how much you get out of it, right? So we think a doctor's office, you got to do it. So you're going to do it, right? But there's lots of things that one has to balance. And the other thing, and I think in a large part of this, and this is the, the big, big wild card, is prevalence. All of this, all yeah. of this is crucially yeah. dependent on how prevalent the yeah. virus is in your community. Yeah. And, and, and if it's extremely small, then fine, do anything. If it's, zero, if it's if large, everything changes. Right. Well, can we talk a little bit about that just here at the end? Like, what we 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 appreciate that more now than we did at the start of this thing. That the heterogeneity across geography matters a ton, and I can tell you down even in Texas, where you know they're making headlines these days because every day that passes is a new high for the number of hospitalizations they have, and it's really been spiking since late May. But even within Texas, you know, they divide the state across trauma service areas, so 25 trauma service areas. Out in West Texas, there are, like, there are spots in Texas where there are no cases. Mm-hmm. Zero, one, two. Lubbock and Austin had the same number, their trauma service areas, at the end of May. Since then, Lubbock is down one, and Austin is like four times up. And so geographic heterogeneity is huge, and I just wonder what the implications are for policy, because it's hard. it's hard to govern such a heterogeneous area. Let me, let me build on your point, Kate, and also to Adi's point about sporting events. So let me ask you a question hmm. to all three of you. Let's imagine you were thinking of going to a sporting event. Let's say it's indoors, doesn't matter, but let's just say there's 20,000 people at the event. There's three numbers in my view, and I want to know which one you're most concerned about. Are you most concerned about the prevalence? So what fraction of those 20,000 people have it? Are you worried more about catching it from one of those people? Or are you worried more if you catch it that you will have a serious outcome as a result? So which of those three? Adi seemed to imply he more cares about the prevalence rate. I'm actually not as concerned about that. Yeah, of course I am. But uh, I mean, it's multiplicative, Adi. So I would be fine if you told me I'm going to get it. I'm going to, sorry, are enough people there that have it. I'm going to get it, but I'm not going to have a serious outcome from it. As a matter of fact, if it provided me immunity, I'd pay a large amount of money to go to that particular event. As a matter of fact, that would be great. So I'm more, I care more about the third bucket, but I want to hear from you guys because it's multiplicative. Which one do you care the it's most? That, it, well, it's not, I, it's multiplicative assuming those things are independent, right? But well, well, I mean, it's, still or, multiplicative. it's multiplicative as a set of conditional problems. Yeah, but, but I, I guess just trying to get that from like three probabilities, because I, I don't think, I, I think unfortunately it's highly correlated that like, I, I think, you know, the, my most concerning thing is if I get it, how sick do I get? That was me. I'm with you. Right. Me too. But, you know, I still do think that that, given my particular age bracket, et cetera, is a relatively low probability. I and have that's, to say- what has kind of informed my relative risk tolerance, I think, compared to a lot of uh, people around me uh, can, can through I, all this. Can I ask trouble, you? I mean, the trouble but, with that variable is that it's not actionable. I mean, that's that's kind of set right now, and you're choosing your activities and your events you attend according to these other variables. That one's yeah. fixed across all of them. So in some cases, it's not as relevant. If you're if it if it comes when it comes time to where you allocate your time and space. 
Adi what also matters, yeah, Edson, what also matters extensively here is that, I, I'm going to piggyback on what you said, Kate, it, it, it's kind of constant, but even within the subsets that it changes, it doesn't change that much. I mean, the difference between me and you, Shane, is relevant, but not huge. And the difference ah. between me and someone 10 years older is, is obviously relevant, again, but not huge, probably a factor of two in each step, right? So that matters a lot epidemiologically, but you're probably twice as, as likely to survive as I am, or, maybe, or half as likely to die, and someone 10 years older is probably twice as likely to die. But prevalence is a number that can change enormously yeah. and, and orders of magnitude. And so that's why I'm, I'm looking at that, because I think that's, I think that's where the variance is. I'm going to end with yeah. something else that really caught my eye over this last week, which I'm really struggling with which is i really believe we need to stop moving away from counts and concentrate on the things that are much more precise like hospitalizations and deaths and what has come up and this is shocking to me is this concept of po false positives i didn't realize that that's a concern until i spoke to one of my friends who's in a big job at the city of philadelphia and they were talking with their health insurance about doing testing and they said there's going to be about a one percent false positive rate and then I talked to a friend of mine who's uh, my, actually my brother-in-law who, who runs a big real estate empire in New York City, and they're trying to get uh, retailers to come back. And he, and he asked me about testing, and he told me about a friend of his and his company who tested positive after having had the virus eight weeks earlier. And, he's, and they told him he needed to quarantine. He's like, nothing wrong with me. What are you talking about? He went to a different hospital, had a retest, and he was negative. And then I just found another article that, that talks about this as well and confines it towards uh, potentially or the rapid new rapid device is actually quite unreliable, even at testing for the virus. And that means that there's this huge just wrench in the system. So let me just comment on two things you said, Adi. First of all, um, I agree with you. False positives clearly are not great. Um, I would claim that false negatives could be more costly to society than false positives because someone that's a false negative um, thinks she or he does not have it. Therefore, she or he could therefore spread it to other people. Um, but I agree with you from a retailer's real, real, point of view. Real quick, it's not a semantic thing. You have to dial one up at the expense of the other, essentially. And so you're saying you want to test. Well, you don't have to. I mean, you can have a test that is, you know, this is the classic, again, I, I apologize, sensitivity specificity. This is the classic, these are what epidemiologists call the false positive and false negative rate. In theory, you could have a test that if you have it, it's going to say you're going to have it. And if you don't have it, it says you don't have it. Sure. And so you can have both of those high. You can. An optimal test would have both optimal, of those. Well, yes, but generally we're dealing with air. No, and you have to I, choose I agree with that. Eric, you're playing golf. You got, you got sand on the left and out of bounds on the right. Which way you want to lean? I mean, you, you no, 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 I just want to comment. The perfect that. golfer doesn't have to worry about no, it. You're right. All I wanted to comment was mathematically, they don't sum to one. Conceptually, I just want to make no. sure everyone knows you could get them both low. The second thing I want to talk about what Adi said was, mm -hmm. I completely agree. You've not convinced me that I should care less about three, but I will say where the variation is, is a very important concept, yeah. which yeah. means even if there is a change in probability of death, let's say between me and Shane, if different regions of the country have a 50 to 100 to one rate, that's a much bigger driver than the right. two to one rate you mentioned on death rates. Mm -hmm. Let me just follow up with one thing here. The reason why the positive, the, the false positive rate in the beginning wasn't such a problem because the people testing were overwhelmingly positive. They were sick and they knew it and they were in hospitals. Right. And so you right. missed a percentage point out of 60 or 50 or 40 or 30. Okay, whatever. But now we're looking at, 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 at overall positive rates between two and 5% across the country. And if places that are two are really one, and, and as you test, and remember, we're counting. We don't, if you notice that the tracks of, of COVID-19 cases, positive cases are in numbers, that's a problem if we have rising tests and false positive rate, we'll see rising numbers when there's really nothing happening. Adi, you started this by saying you were kind of pushing people towards better metrics and hospitalization in particular is something we talked about the last couple of weeks and it really pushed me to go that way in the data that I collect. So deaths are kind of the gold standard in some sense, but since they're so oh. lagged, so yeah. lagged and relatively rare, it's easier to work with something, nicer to work with something upstream from that hospitalization seems to be kind of a middle, a good middle ground. All right, fellas, we need to wrap up and move on, but that's been our first half hour here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us 
after the break. Wharton Moneyball. Do these athletic behemoths with muscles on top of muscles more likely to have injuries? The reason why the Brewers are willing to invest in Yelich is because his body type they do not believe is the kind that will break down. And so we know this because he was on the swimsuit edition of Sports <laughs> Illustrated without any clothes. Well, <laughs> well, you knew this. I just learned this. <laughs> See, I told you I learned stuff on the show. I just learned that. Wharton Moneyball. Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on Business Radio. Holding its line on a good line, and down it goes! The best golf coverage is on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. The world's greatest golfers. Tiger Woods. Phil Nicholson. Brent Couples. The best analysis. Tiger's going to have to get a little chip back on his shoulder. Unforgettable moments. Towards the left edge, and it goes in! It's the most listened to golf in the world. Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. This a virtual edition coming to you from Zoom as we have for the last couple of months. But we've got the whole crew here. We'll be doing this weekly and until we end up back in person on campus at the University of Pennsylvania, which we will eventually. Right now, you've got Shane Jensen in Center City, Philadelphia, Adi Weiner and Eric Bradlow out on the main line. And this is Cade Massey in Bucks County, all in Philadelphia area. Guys, we've just talked about the background for sports, which is the coronavirus situation. Now let's talk more specifically about sports. I can't imagine you three are happy about the way the baseball talks have been going. No, it's it's been very, very frustrating. It's, I mean, there's, I think, pettiness on both sides, to be completely honest. But, and I think I'm increasingly becoming convinced that it's just kind of this looming CBA kind of that, that they're basically just kind of using this COVID situation to lay the groundwork for their next collective bargaining agreement. But of course we suffer in the meantime, it's a year and a half away. So they've Mm -hmm. got to play a full season next year, presumably before the CBA, but it's amazing to me that I guess it shouldn't be too surprising, but that it would carry that much weight when it's still a season and a half away. Well, yeah, I think it's partly historically. I mean, the, the, the most recent CBA, you know, I, I think there's a feeling that the player the, of, on, on the player's side that they were disadvantaged in the mo- most immediate, you know, the CBA that they're currently playing under. Um, and so I think they're even more kind of gearing up for essentially a, a fight of that. And certainly any the attempts right now to kind of try and further like, you know, uh, reduce salaries for the actual games that are played this season is not going anywhere. Uh, there definitely is frustration on the player side uh, with the last agreement. There's a sense that they can tie you up for years and that more and more values coming out of younger players, that free agency is less of a incredibly beneficial um, direction for a player to survive into that you really have to negotiate. There's real been a real change in the system, the way players negotiate with the teams in the long term. And I think that the CBA, the past one, the players felt it was to their disadvantage and they may be right that they really didn't get a lot of their value since they were dragged, their careers were dragged during their minors. And then you only get about six, seven years, which is actually a lot for competitive sports for an average player um, to get that many value, many yearly value and that they'd like to renegotiate that. And that's definitely something that we're seeing here, but neither of them are, are being good. And I'm freaking angry at both of them. And I just want to get that out there. Uh I think the, a lot of the analysis also comes down to what I'll call the risk probabilities which means, you know, if you, if you could convince, which is probably not true, if you could tell baseball players, look, by playing a third of the games, let's say 54, whatever the number is right now that they're thinking about, that you would have a much lower probability of being injured and having a long career, you might be able to convince them to only take 40 games worth of pay for 54 games worth of action. But I think what most players will tell you is, and a lot of it depends on, you know, if I'm Bryce Harper and I have a 13-year contract, I'm probably not as worried about it. But if I've got a, if I'm on the last year of my contract and now to get ready for the season, and then to play those 54 games, let's say I'm making up because that's a third of the season, but if I still have two-thirds of the risk, well, then that doesn't seem like a good mathematics for me. This might end my career. I'm taking a lower per-game basis, and now I'm putting the rest of my career at risk. So to me, um, I think a great study, which I haven't read about yet, would be what's the probability of risk and injury, 
as a function of the number of games played. And you're saying it's very con- it's likely to be concave, in which case Correct. this is really pushing it onto the players. That's really interesting. I've not heard that talked about. That's a very plausible. That's a very plausible idea there. And that, and that's kind of the the individual risk aspect. There's kind of this collective risk too, in the sense that like. You know, I mean, I, the, the, the owners are arguing that, oh, well, this is going to be kind of a financial disaster of a season, and we kind of have to share collectively that downside risk, like, between the players and owners. But, I mean, it's not like the owners, when they have a really good financial season, somehow distribute that extra money to, uh, to the players. So there's this, like, I think there's a sense, of a, a, compel, a compelling argument made by the players is that they, you know, why should they kind of accept this downside risk when they don't benefit from the upside risk? Adi, we, All right, we there we go. The, uh, the other problem is, is that the way they've structured the two choices that are in front of them are essentially there's a 50-game mandatory imposition. They can, the owners can force that on the players uh, give, given their agreement. And they would get uh, – their salary would be, would be for 50 games at full price. Or what was offered to them was play 60% more games, basically play 80 games, at uh, 70% of their salary. So essentially play 60 more ga- 60% more games for 16% more money. And the players are looking at that and going, I don't want to do that. And that's why there, that's why there's no agreement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So guys, where do you think this, this is going to net out? You know, last week, Manfred, the baseball commissioner famously said, I'm hundred percent convinced we're going to have baseball. And then he walked that back on Monday and all of a sudden, people are not convinced they're going to get a deal done. What's your forecast right now? Probability we actually see baseball this year. Three probabilities, fellas. I will go with 90%. 60%. 50%. Disappointed. So here's another conditional. Conditional on us not seeing baseball this year um, is what Rob Manfred – going to be commissioner for very much longer what's the probability that he gets canned who cans him yeah the the, he works for the, the owners. owners he works for the owners yeah but you know i mean yeah. he, i just think his the negotiation of this uh, beyond the actual inherent issues the negotiation of this is, has just been come yeah. across to me as just horribly mismanaged but maybe that's just me yeah hey, the question is how the owners feel about it so, the, <laughs> yeah. so the, the, the fans don't like it and the players don't like it but how do the owners feel about it yeah. and how do, they, think, how do they feel know, about him I think the point that Adi brings up, again, is an important one, which is, you know, you have a finite number of years as a baseball player. And by the way, we don't know from an analytics perspective, you know, if you ask Roger Federer, he might say, you know, the injury he had three years ago elongated his career by two or three years in tennis. You know, obviously, we now know he's not playing for the rest of 2020. So while he's getting chronologically older, um, maybe this will elongate his career. I don't know about baseball. Like, suppose there is no season and I'm a, you know, I'm a 36, 37 year old player or even a 25 year old player. Do I add on one at the end or, or how does, how is all that going to work? What was the consequence of Adrian Peterson getting hurt and then getting suspended? And, um, you know, he, the running backs, they, they lose tread on those tires. And so did he, did he get an out year that was better than it would have been? Cause he got a year when the salary cap was higher. I, I don't know. There's some kind of elongation benefit possibly if it does work like if that. I had to guess, I'm just guessing. I would guess that, and I know Adi, I think you guys have done a little bit of work on this. I would imagine the number of carries of a running back creates more downward variation, if you'd like, than the chronological age of the running back. I'm not saying both of them don't have an impact, but I would guess by saving somebody, you know, 200 carries in a season, you're going to add a much larger number back on the back end than you're going to lose by them being 33 instead of 32. So the other, some of the other negotiations that are going on, you know, baseball and hockey, they're both trying to figure it out as well. Hockey's man, that's a complicated compensation situation, but they're down to like choosing the two cities. I think they decided Vegas was going to host maybe out West and they're still choosing the East, but basketball has had this plan for a while and they're getting some, resistance now there's a coalition of players have emerged Kyrie irving and uh who's White the, howard. is howard involved yeah. all right the sharpshooter out of texas whose name i've forgotten played for the celtics for a while is up there as well avery um avery bradley they are um voicing some concerns and it seems to be a little bit connected to black lives matter and con- and just the restrictions that are being imposed on them and there's for a while there were a few few players and there's a hundred more than a hundred players involved and so all of a sudden what seemed like a certainty and a lot of momentum seems to be in question do we have any insight on what's happening with nba or when that might 
clear up. No. All right. Well, it's just disappointing because we thought that was the one that was most smooth. You know, they're going to play Disney. They're going to do this quarantine thing. And now there's some resistance and um, it just, there's so many barriers. Now, this is one of the reasons I'm not as optimistic as I wish I was about college football. College football is the most complicated of any of these sports because it's got the most teams and the most number of people involved around each team. And we're seeing these complications with simpler sports it's and somehow that industry keeps on moving toward think they're going to make college. Well, football the only happen. the only non complication is you don't have to pay the players. So all this fi- all this yeah. financial wrangling is actually a lot less complicated. That's true. There's and yeah. all the branches go in one direction because they need to play in order to generate that TV revenue. And also, their their careers depend on them being being playing because that's their professional debut or or, or audition is a college. I mean, it's. Well, they would get, they're going to grow and get drafted whether they play or not. That's just going to make the NFL team's more, job more complicated. It'll be harder, but I guess one thing that I'll point out about – one of the things I'm concerned about with colleges is uh, – and, and, and all the sports is the players getting sick. But here's a number that I thought it was very strange. They said, particularly with football players, that they are at risk because their BMIs are high. And I thought that was a little weird. Be- who Technically speaking, who said that? I read it. It was an article in, in, in a reputable newspaper talking. Oh, that's I can't. Craziness. That's they said, craziness. yeah, because I said, that's absolutely insane because BMI can be is 30 is, is a cutoff for obese. Clear, we're talking about body mass index, which yeah. is basically just weight divided by height. And yeah. it's a good indicator. It's, squared normal, or something. Squared. Yeah. It's, it's a good indicator of health on average across normal people, but it would be <laughs> almost unrelated with, they can't, you can't compare a professional athlete to the normal yeah. population on BMI. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to talk about also related to both college football, NBA, et cetera, is there was a very interesting analysis. I think it was, it was I know I read it on 538 that it had to do with, so how long will it take until what we're seeing is actually looks like the NBA? And you might say, well, what do you mean? Well, they actually did an analysis of like the offensive efficiency and the quality of play as the season goes on. Oh, and nice. what's interesting is there's like this, change point like the first eight to ten games in the nba the play by lots of different metrics is just worse like in other words yeah and what's interesting of course is that's the number of these faux seeding games that they're playing is like eight to ten so they're like okay so by the time it gets to the playoffs we're probably going to see about the right nba at least historically it takes eight to ten games for if you look at like the offensive efficiency field goal percentage defensive play the first eight to 10 games look almost nothing like the last 70 or 72. So interesting. You know, I would love to pair that with some motion tracking statistics. We've always kind of fantasized about knowing what, like say motion tracking in hockey looks like as you Mm -hmm. go from regular season to regular season, overtime to playoff to playoff overtime. I would just love to know you could just observe how much effort essentially almost directly observe effort by, by motion tracking. It'd be nice to see some of that as the, they come back, out of the cold and start playing again and how that compares to where we've seen them perform in past. Yeah. And, and, and just on hockey, such a big part of the kind of hockey playoffs, you know, like it is kind of this endurance that, you know, the, the playoffs like really take every last bit out of these players this season, like assuming they do play the playoffs, what are we going to see? I mean, one, you could argue that they're going to be kind of fresher and that they obviously have not had, you know, they've had this time off to rest, but they're going to be coming in like, and, and, and also not really being sure, necessarily right. in, in the kind of game shape that they would have been if they just played the regular playoff uh, schedule. Sure. So um, they announced, they made us open uh, plans announced in the last couple of days. Um, so what, what's going on in the world of tennis right now? And how do we think this is going to look here at one of the biggest tournaments that's on the schedule? Well, I mean, the big challenge is the U.S. Open is played in New York. And you go back to Adi's point about prevalence or about base rate, you know, there's a fairly high base rate in New York. And so the plan right now is, you know, the, the top players are not happy. Um, you know, it's still first getting into the country at all may be difficult. Second, 14-day quarantine. Uh, third, only one coach with you. So you can't bring your big entourage of physios and all of these people. And so the conditions under which they're saying they're going to play um, Djokovic has already said he's not excited about it. Nadal right. is definitely not excited about it. the number one women's player. Ash Barty has said she's not thrilled about it. And so I don't know if they're going to play or not, but um, th- the problem is the conditions. And by the way, the other challenge is the French open is two weeks after. And so now 
you have that, and then you have the French Open coming immediately, it would not surprise me. Let's take an example, Nadal. You could easily imagine whatever the 12-time French Open champion saying, I'm in Spain. It's easy for me to get over to Paris. I'm going to skip the U.S. Open, despite I think he's the defending champ of the U.S. In fact, I know he's the defending champ of the U.S. Open. He may skip the U.S. Open and just play the French. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that, that the uh, New York is uh, doing this. And I'm not surprised because New York has, has been extraordinarily stiff uh, and hasn't made any changes in its lockdown. New York City has, has very, very low cases at this point. If you take a look at the hospitalizations, deaths, everything is as low as you'd, you'd like to see really anywhere, yet they're still acting like they're in the midst of it. What I'm really concerned about for the United States is the other, other, other countries might not do this and we, no one's going to come to the U.S. to play, you know, because Adi, of the... Those... Adi, I think we need to understand something about yeah. spread and because I remember when Texas was talking about opening, the epidemiologist models showed they were talking about opening May 1, and they did. Yeah. And they, the epidemiologist model showed what the summer would look like if they waited one more month or if they waited two more months. And the, my memory of the models were if you waited two more months and didn't open until July 1, it basically wasn't going to come back up. If you waited one more month, it was going to be greatly cut. But if you went ahead and opened now, it was going to come up. And so the, I, don't, I don't understand it. I haven't looked at the models well enough to know, but it's, there has to be some kind of suspected cases in the population that you're going to buy, this is the best case I can make for it, by staying shut down for longer than you would like and, and being firmer about it, you're going to knock it down lower so that when you do open up, you don't get this kickback up. Yeah, as, as it follows from the exponential decay, right? So exponential will drive you out. And if you go in a little extra longer by the exponentiality of it, you'll go way lower. And it's just mm-hmm. the, the magic of, of multiplication of numbers less than one. They go to zero really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you can do that, but I'm actually not talking about the general policy. I'm talking about in specific um, in the sense that you got to make relaxes. You have to make exceptions for the athletes. Those, the, you know, one thing you do widely is different from what you do individually. And this is where things get and sometimes political and just sometimes in other, other, you know, differentiations, yeah. um, grocery store workers go, I mean, we do the things that we need to do. And I'm kind of arguing like baseball in world war two sports is important and we need to get it happening. And, and if that means differential rules for athletes, well, so be it. Mm-hmm. So guys, in just a, we only have a couple of minutes to go. I want to, I want to touch a little bit on college football. I kind of feel like we have to start consuming it in anticipation because we may not get it. So if we don't consume it now, you're not going to get it at all. So a couple of things that came out this week that I just wanted to draw our attention to the um, Bud Elliott over at SB nation published his blue chip ratio. Do you remember this thing? We've had Bud on the show a number of times over the years. He's kind of one of the recruit. He is one of the big recruiting gurus in the country. And he, and he created this metric, which is very Bill Jamesian. The blue chip ratio is simply for uh, any given school, the number of four and five star recruits they've, they've signed over the last four years, the last four classes, over the number of, of, of lower, two, three, one, two, three star recruits. So what percentage of your roster, essentially, of your four-year signings is these top, these four and five star guys? And the reason it says some purchase is that his claim is, you can't win the national championship unless you're above 50%. And it's this beautifully clean heuristic because it's easy to understand. And it happens to be empirically true over a short period of time. And there are only a certain number of teams that clear that bar every year. And he published that this past, this past week. And so I just wanted to touch on it real quick. Um, and, and a couple of things that are interesting about it. So one, let's just name the teams because you start getting into some you learn something about the about the field and some developments. Over How many the last teams are there that meet this criterion? Like twelve to fifteen. This year there are thirteen, or it's at fifteen. There's fifteen, which is going up. So Eric, one thing they've observed is going up over time. There are some dynamics over time that are interesting. So they're going up over time, but also the the teams that have the highest percentages, the the highs, the top of the curve. And Adi, this is where it connects to some of the stuff you and I have talked about the last couple of years, are going up. So a couple of years ago, there was only one team that had more than 70%. The blue chip ratio was 70%. And now there are three at 80% or more. So the top recruiting schools continue to separate themselves from the rest. And that's kind of the obvious suspects, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, 83, Georgia, 82, Ohio State, 80. I apologize. I don't know this data. Are the, I, know, I don't know this answer to this question. 
could there be an infinite number of five star and four star? Their subjective. Yeah, are the total number are the total numbers yeah. of four and five stars fixed over this period they're, or no? They're they're not quite fixed. Adi and I have played with this. Um, Adi and I have played with this some, um, and they do move a little bit. But the number of blue the the five stars are relatively fixed. It's right around thirty a year. It, fl- it fluctuates some, but you can think of it as thirty. The four stars. I'm gonna. I'm, I don't. I don't remember exactly. Odd. Do you hundred, know like hundred two, and fifty or hundred or yeah, so. Yeah. I was thinking, but the, there's, there's about two hundred at the top. Yeah. So and it's pretty stable, Eric. It's pretty stable. I see. The, it, you know, you look at the next tier though, and there's a bunch in the next tier. So Texas happens to be the fourth one, which on the one hand is neat for a Texas Longhorn fan. On the other hand, it's hugely disappointing because what have they done? They're sitting there for number four position, and they have nothing to show for it in the last ten years, but. One of the other things that caught my eye is, you know, you see Oklahoma in that next year, LSU, Clemson, but you see a few new faces. And as we start looking into the season, you start seeing the preseason top tens coming out. You see some new faces coming up. It's showing up really nice in Bud Elliott's blue chip ratio. So Florida, for example, is right there in that second tier. Penn State is almost in that second tier. Notre Dame is sneaking back up there. These are schools that have been down a little bit, and they're really coming back strong, and they're not quite up there with the usual suspects, the Alabamas and Clemsons and Ohio States, but they're right behind them. And it's kind of fun because these are big blue blood universities that have had bad programs for a little while and they're sneaking back up into the conversation. So just two, two related questions. Would you allow us to use this data as a significant covariate to score coaches? And second, if you were a better, would you be looking for arbitrage opportunities where this metric says this team is a player, but the betting odds say different. So the, what do you think? Can you score coaches as it relates to this? And can you bet according to this? You can, I, the, I, I'd be more comfortable scoring coaches than I would betting. Um, the court, the coaches, of course, there's a lot to consider. Some of these schools are in much more privileged recruiting grounds than others. Um, and those teams have a built-in advantage. Um, but yes, well, I was the, even saying conditional on what they get, how they perform on the field. I wasn't, oh, yeah, I was bringing up the yeah. fact that, of course, right. coaches do recruit the players. And so that's a different score of the coach, too. Well, it's a fascinating. Uh, yeah, to, go ahead, Shane. Uh, to follow up on that, like, yeah, I, I was kind of curious. I mean, obviously, there's this heuristic threshold of like, you know, you need uh, at least 50% to win a national championship. But is the kind of overall relationship between, say, wins? And, you know, percentage of four and five stars, is if, if that's kind of roughly linear, you could kind of fit some kind of model that then you can start looking at the residuals, like who are the highest, like, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, your number of wins above or below the expectation dependent, you know, based on this proportion. You know, I think broadly you could do such a thing, but this is pretty coarse. So this yeah. is a really, really coarse heuristic. And we could, we could, we could, we could, we could value the rosters in a much finer way than this. But the fun part of it is it's so simple and it's so coarse and so simple and yet still kind of parsimonious in explaining who is actually a contender for, um, for the national championship. All right, fellas, we have tapped out on time here. Fun conversation about sports an interesting conversation about the coronavirus situation and, of course, the interaction between those two things. We do this every week now. We're doing hour-long shows virtually. We'll continue to do that until we can get back into the same place. But thank you for listening. From the whole crew here, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Bossman, Matty D., we appreciate your listening. We'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.